Good, so um, let's open up your, your Bibles. If, uh, if you don't have one, it doesn't matter. It's going to be up on the, on the board there. Uh, if the, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. So I was chatting to this friend of mine a while ago, and he was telling me about a visit that he had paid to a small Zimbabwean town. And when he arrived there, he popped into the supermarket to go and buy some stuff, and he realized that there was a crusade on the go. So there was this big, elaborate stage in the car park at the, the shopping center. And uh, the stage, he said, was just really eye-catching. There was this lovely, plush, red carpet for the preacher to pace up and down. And he was immaculately turned out with shiny suit and, and uh, you, you know, those kind of shoes that have a little peak on the end. Um, and he said the interesting thing was that this guy was preaching from Psalm 23. And he kept misquoting the last verse of Psalm 23. And he kept saying that goodness and Mercedes will follow me all the days of my life. You can imagine what sort of a gospel was being preached there. No gospel at all. And it's very easy for us to stand back and to criticize somebody like that. But we need to look into our own hearts as well. Because sometimes we don't necessarily follow God or come to church from the right motives. And we do need to struggle against our fleshly instinct, which wants to get God onto our side, onto our team, if you like, because he's such a skilled, powerful player, and he's going to give us an edge, isn't he? So we want him to give us an edge in business, in our family life, in all areas, in sport as well. Um, and the problem is that we, we, don't, we don't actually want God to be the captain of the team. We don't want him, if you like, in, in footballing terms, to be the manager or the coach. We want him to be on the team, but we still want to be the captain. And this is something that we will struggle with for the rest of our lives, that inclination to want to use God as a powerful personal assistant in our lives. And so we need to check our motives. The snag is that if we do that, folks, and if we come to God as a powerful personal assistant, what we don't realize is that we're not even qualified to enter the presence of God under our own qualifications, under our own abilities. Because every one of us has rebelled against God and there is a barrier between us and God. And we actually need someone to represent us to God. And if we don't have that person who represents us to God, we're not going to be able to be in relationship with Him, let alone influence Him, which is not what we want to do anyway. We want Him to influence us. And so the writer to the Hebrews is constantly coming back to this fact that Jesus is the one who represents us to God. And the only way we can come into God's presence is when we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, when He is in charge of our lives. That's the only way that it's going to work. And 
it was difficult for the people in, in that first century because, and especially for Jewish Christians, because that's who the writer to Hebrew, Hebrews was writing to, because if they declared Christ, it would put them in the firing line of the Roman Empire. It would put them in harm's way. And so he wanted them to make sure that they submitted themselves to Christ, even if it meant hardship and persecution. And it needs to be the same for us today. We must be prepared to submit ourselves to Christ, to be obedient to him, to get the order right, if you like. Jesus here, us down below, rather than the other way around. This is what he wants us to do. And, but to establish the fact that we need to submit ourselves to Christ... He needs to establish the authority of Christ and also the necessity of having a high priest who represents us to God. And so that's what he's going to be doing today. First of all, he's going to be looking at the criteria that need to apply to a high priest. What are the universal principles of high priesthood? And that's verses 1 to 4 of our passage today. Then the second part of the passage, he talks about the fact that Christ has been appointed by God as our high priest. And then thirdly, he talks about the path that Jesus walked to his appointment. And that last one, we're going to spend a bit of time there because it's just so encouraging and inspiring when we see the path that Jesus walked to his high priesthood. It encourages us to want to submit ourselves to him, And it also encourages us to obey him no matter what the cost. So let's read the passage, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for them. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of, this, because of this, he is obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron was the first high priest that was appointed by God in the Old Testament. Now we come on to the appointment of Christ as the high priest. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, namely God, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm 2, and we've seen that quotation earlier on in Hebrews. And he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then the last section, this is the path to appointment. In the days of his flesh, in other words, whilst he was a human being on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Sounds a little bit strange, that reference to Melchizedek, but we'll come on to that as we move along. So first of all, let's just have a look at the criteria that a high priest needs to fulfill 
What are the universal principles that apply to high priesthood? Verse 1. For every high priest. So these principles that we're about to talk about apply to everyone who is a high priest appointed by God. Every high priest, and then the first principle, he needs to be chosen from among humans. Every high priest chosen from among men. He is from among us, but he is distinct from us in the sense that he has been chosen by God and appointed as a high priest. Every high priest must be a human being. Then the second principle. First of all, well, he's a representative to deal with our sin problem. So if we continue reading, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. God always works through representatives. Initially, Adam represented humankind. And because Adam rebelled, every human since Adam has been counted as rebellious. He was our representative. Seems like we need a new representative, doesn't it? And as rebellious human beings, we needed someone to represent us to God. Because as rebels, we were banned from the presence of God. We couldn't enter his presence. So God started addressing this problem by instituting the priesthood. What was the most important task of the high priest? Well, we see it in the second part now of the verse that we're looking at. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Under the Old Testament covenant, all the priests were involved in giving gifts and sacrifices for sins. But once a year, there was a special sacrifice that was offered for sin on a day called the Day of Atonement. What is atonement? To make atonement for something is to make amends for a wrongdoing or for an injury. So if I offend Gail in some way, I need to make atonement for that. I need to make amends. I need to put that right. If there is going to be any sort of relationship that continues between me and Gail, and the more serious the sin or the offense, the more important it is for that atonement to be established. And that was what was needed in our case, because we had rebelled against God and created this incredible mess that we see in the world around us today. So on the Day of the Atonement, a sacrifice was made, and it could only be made by one of the priests, the high priest himself. And that was the sacrifice that the writer had in mind when he was writing here. Because on the Day of Atonement, the priest had to make a sacrifice for himself before he made a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And it's significant that the writer had the Day of Atonement in mind because he wanted to emphasize that the most important task of a high priest was to help us deal with our sin. And that was the reason why we couldn't come into God's presence in the first place. So we need this high priest to represent us, to make atonement, to make amends for the sins that we have committed. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make a sacrifice for himself so that he could enter the presence of God, and then he would make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. This was 
a way of making amends where this animal took the sins of the people and was then killed, punished in the place of the people. That wasn't effective, but it was effective in the sense that it pointed towards the ultimate sacrifice, which was going to be made by Jesus Christ himself, the Lamb of God. So the first criteria, the high priest was chosen from among men. He was a human. The second criteria, he was appointed to represent humans to God in dealing with their sin problem. What about the third criteria? I love this one. He was sympathetic and approachable. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. That's the reference there to the Day of Atonement. So he deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. How often do we displease God simply out of ignorance? How often do we do it simply because we're wayward and a little bit willful? You know, there is provision for us if that happens. There is no provision if we are utterly rebellious and we won't actually come and avail ourselves of the sacrifice that is being made. But if we have a heart that wants to please God, if we are prepared to submit ourselves to His way of salvation through Jesus Christ, then there is a way for us. There is a way for our waywardness and our ignorance to be dealt with. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Why? Since he himself is beset with weakness. That's an interesting word in the Greek. It means to be subject to something or surrounded by something. Do you ever feel sort of hemmed in by sin? I do. Sometimes I just feel very weak in the face of temptation. And this is what he's talking about here. It's, there's something about our human condition that just makes us very susceptible to sin. And knowing what this was like, the high priest dealt gently with the people he represented. Now, every high priest except Jesus actually gave in to that weakness and sinned. That's why the high priest had to make a sacrifice for himself. But Jesus never sinned. However, he did know what it was like to be weak. He knew what it was like to be tempted. He knew what it was like to feel vulnerable in the face of sin and temptation. And that's why he deals gently with us. You know, this theme has already started in, in Hebrews. Let's listen to Hebrews 2 verse 17. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful, do you see it? and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation, that's another word for atonement. It's making amends for, it's um, making up for sin, to make propitiation for the sin of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, Jesus suffered when he was tempted. Do you know that? Jesus suffered. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And then Hebrews 4 verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, 
yet without sin. Let us then with confidence. Isn't that lovely? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. I love the fact that God's throne is described as a throne of grace. It says in the Bible that he sits on the mercy seat. What, what is grace? I love that expression that says it's G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. We can come to the throne of grace. We can come to his riches, his supply that will help us in our time of need, that we may find mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So the high priest, he was chosen from among men. He was appointed to represent humans, to deal with our sin problem. And he was sympathetic and approachable. And then last of all, he was called by God. You couldn't set yourself up as a high priest. Unfortunately, at the time, the, the high priestly family actually purchased their position. Can you imagine that? It's actually not that surprising, isn't it? <laughs> In life today, we just see it all the time. People with the power and people with the wealth are the ones who purchase positions of influence. But Jesus was called. And we go into that now. This is the second part. The appointment of Christ as the high priest. Look there at verse 5. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's a quotation of Psalm 2, verse 7. We had a look at Psalm 2, verse 7 some time ago when it came up previously in Hebrews. But what he was thinking of here and what, Jesus, uh, what God was talking about was the enthronement of Jesus as the Messiah in Jerusalem when he was raised from the dead. In other words, that man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was born a human being, born to a father who was a carpenter, born in a stable, that man who lived 2,000 years ago was the incarnate Son of God. He was God in the flesh who was raised from the dead in Jerusalem and established as king. That's the one that we are referring to. That is our high priest. That's the one that God appointed as our high priest. Doesn't he sound like an amazing high priest to have? Doesn't he sound like an excellent representative I don't know about you, but sometimes we, we have occasions where we're voting for someone to represent us. We're very careful, aren't we, about how we vote. We want the right person to represent us. But Jesus was no ordinary high priest because it says here that he was a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, at this stage of the letter, the writer to Hebrews doesn't really tell us very much about Melchizedek. And so I'm not going to tell you very much about Melchizedek. He comes again later on. But the only point that he is establishing here is that Melchizedek um, was part of a priesthood that was eternal. So what he's telling us is that Jesus is our eternal high priest. He is the last high priest that is ever going to be appointed as a representative of human beings. He's our high priest now and he will continue to be our high priest forever. But what about the path? What about the path that Jesus walked to his appointment? Look to verse 7. 
This was a path of suffering, and it was a path of obedience. And when we suffer for being obedient, we need to endure, don't we? We need to persevere. So it was a path of perseverance. In the days of his flesh, while he was alive on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. What does that remind you of? He prayed to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now, the commentators believe that what the writer had in mind here, or what he was alluding to, was what Jesus went through on two particular pivotal occasions. The one was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the other was at Golgotha when he was crucified. Gethsemane, let's just think about it for a moment, and it's good for this occasion to be on our minds as we approach Easter. Gethsemane was the culmination, if you like, and also the pattern of every struggle that Jesus had throughout his life as he submitted to the will of his Father. In other words, during this days of the flesh. What happened in Gethsemane is sort of like a blueprint or a type of the kind of struggle that we're going to go through as Christ followers. Let's have a look at it, Matthew 26, 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Our biggest struggle as Christians, folks, is going to be submitting our will to the will of Christ. We often are led to believe that God is going to sort out everything in our lives, that our lives are going to be perfect. We're often led to believe that we're going to have the Garden of Eden here on earth. But in actual fact, this earth is very similar to the Garden of Gethsemane because we're constantly having to fight against our own will and submit ourselves to the will of God. When we pray that prayer for healing, and it doesn't come, and we keep praying it day after day, month after month, year after year, or maybe we're praying for a loved one in our family and they're not being converted. We just keep on praying. But eventually, and in the process of doing that, we need to be saying, this is what I want, but your will be done. I'm submitting myself to you. You know best. You know better. And then later on in verse 42, it says, Again, for the second time he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then on the cross, what happened on the cross? In, in verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And I've told you before that that, that original word, it's been softened by the English translation. It, it is literally screamed. Jesus literally screamed with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The significant thing, folks, is even whilst he was experiencing separation from God the Father, Jesus was still praying. He was praying crying out with a loud voice. He was quoting from Psalm 22. That's what 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where that comes from. And he knew, because he would have meditated on it throughout his life, that that psalm referred to him. It was about how the Messiah was going to have to suffer on behalf of the people so that their relationship could be restored to God and so that they could continue in relationship with him for eternity. And so while he was crying out, while he was praying, he was, saying, he was actually saying, God, I still trust you. I still believe that even though I've been separated from you, you're going to do something to bring me back into your presence. And so, in the words of verse 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Folks, if we want to be in relationship with God, if we want God to hear us in the sense that we connect with him, we need to revere him. He's not just a powerful member of the team. He's not even the captain. He's the manager of the team. We need to be reverent to him. Let's move on to verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, that's a strange thing, isn't it? thought that Jesus might need to be made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God, here we have it again, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, an eternal high priesthood. Although he was God's son. Do you know that Jesus was not appointed as the ultimate high priest simply because he was God's son? That wasn't the only reason. He was appointed as a high priest because he learned obedience through what he suffered. He didn't have to learn obedience because he hadn't been obedient in the past. He didn't have to be made perfect in the sense that he had been imperfect in the past. That's not what the writer is getting at here. It's just that although he had always been obedient, he had never experienced suffering because of his obedience. So Jesus learned obedience in the sense that he arrived at a new stage of experience, an experience that all of us have had. Before, when he was in heaven with God, he was always obedient to God, but there was no suffering in heaven. But when he came to earth, he had to suffer. And now we can see why we can empathize with him, because when we're called to obedience to God, often it does result in discomfort and suffering, sometimes even persecution. So Jesus was made perfect in the sense that he had graduated from the school of suffering. He'd reached this new stage, if you like, of experience. Jesus walked that path of obedience to the Father, even when that obedience led to suffering. And even the ultimate agony of eternal separation from God. Jesus persevered. He put his trust in the goodness of God. That's what he was doing when he was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was reminding himself of that psalm. Jesus believed that God would be faithful to his promises. And folks, we need to do the same thing. We need to follow his example. So let's summarize what we've said so far. God has determined that we need a high priest, and he's defined the qualifications or the criteria, the task, if you like, for a high priest in the following way. He had to be human. 
He needed to be a representative to deal with our sin problem. He needed to be sympathetic and approachable. And he needed to be appointed by God, not self-appointed. And then we went on to show that Jesus fulfilled all of these criteria, but with particular emphasis on his divine appointment, God appointed him to be high priest, and also his value and effectiveness as a representative, because he was both sympathetic and approachable. Why is he sympathetic and approachable? Because he walked the path to his appointment, a path of suffering and submitting his will to God the Father. So I'd just like to close with some implications just and a conclusion. Let's just recall, remember we've been talking about the concept of God's rest. Such a lovely concept, isn't it? That even though we might be busy in our lives, we're in a place of rest, of trust in God. We can enter God's rest every day if we receive Jesus as our high priest. Why? Because Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. We know where we're going. That brings a tremendous sense of settledness to our lives. But notice the qualification. Can you see it there in verse 9? It says, In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's that eternal rest that we can experience. Being desert... Oh, sorry, I didn't do the emphasis. He becomes a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's the key. The source of eternal salvation is received through faith, faith in Jesus. And as we've learned today, Jesus is the perfect high priest. Put your trust in Jesus and he will become your high priest. However, when Jesus becomes your high priest, you must seek to obey him. That's why the writer has been such, at such pains to establish the efficacy and also the authority of Jesus as our high priest. That's why we submit to him. Jesus isn't calling us, or God isn't calling us to obey just anybody, somebody without authority. He's calling us to obey his eternal high priest. Now, many of you will be thinking, oh my word, I just, I just don't know that I'm going to be able to obey perfectly. Well, that's exactly the case. In the words of Hebrews, didn't we read that earlier on? We will be ignorant and wayward. That's the whole reason why we need a high priest. But we mustn't be rebellious. We must keep coming back and submitting ourselves. We must keep coming back and asking for that sanctification, for that atonement that Jesus Brings. And we must desire, folks, I wish this could be the case for every one of us, we should desire with all our hearts to love Jesus by obeying him. After all, isn't that what Jesus said? He said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So we do this out of a motive of wanting to please and to love Jesus, and we obey him. Remember, I asked the question earlier, what is it that motivates us to come to church? What is it that motivates us to follow Christ? Is it so that goodness and Mercedes will follow us all the days of our lives? We need to follow Christ because he is our high priest. That's the only way that we can enter into the presence of a holy God, 
to be clothed, as the Bible says, in Christ, clothed in his righteousness alone. But following, folks, Jesus as our high priest requires us to actually follow him. We need to live like Jesus lived. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father. And so we must obey him as our high priest. However, folks, and here's the rub. Obeying Jesus is going to require suffering and perseverance. Thank God we will never be separated from the love of the Father. Because Jesus took that on our behalf. So even though it involves perseverance and suffering and hardship, we'll never be separated from the love of the Father. Jesus did. Can you imagine what it was like for him? I just can't imagine from eternity past, he had been at one with the Father in the Spirit and then suddenly wrenched into what was the equivalent of an eternal separation from the Father and from the Spirit. Folks, God has promised us the Garden of Eden. But it only comes in all its fullness later on. In the meantime, we're going to have so many Garden of Gethsemane experiences. The writer was saying to the Hebrews, don't think that you can go back to an outdated priestly system in the synagogue. Yes, it might save you from persecution, but it's not going to reconcile you to God. And if you want Jesus to be your high priest... You must love him, and you must show that love by obeying him no matter what the cost.